India was always looked upon as a country that never participated in any discussions, you know. India was always on the sidelines. And I believe that the Hollywood movie industry and Bollywood is absolutely responsible for this. When an advertisement or a movie wanted to show an uncool person, hmm. that uncool person would be wearing a lungi or a dhoti. Very Now, stereotyping. It was stereotyping our culture as being extremely boring, extremely yeah. backward. and something that is very uncool after i won my first grammy award when i met prime minister modi that is when prime minister modi he sort of like you know inspired me to dedicate my life and my career entirely to this cause since i'm so passionate about it i spoke with the three time grammy winner ricky cage he has many many accolades and i'm sure you can read about him in the description but the one that stood out for me and appeals to me is the greatness that he has and the humility and kindness that he exudes We spoke about many things. You know, he is a person who has taken Indian music to great heights and put it on the global map. And not just his music, but music with a message, which is respect the environment. You know, we spoke about his struggles with ADHD growing up and even now and how he powers through it. He had the privilege of listening in to the camaraderie of PM Modi and President Macron in Paris earlier this year. Lots of interesting anecdotes in there for you. He also spoke about how our relationship with music has changed. Earlier it was an experience. Now it's just a click of a button and we move on. And how has those trends really impacted how we consume music and for how long does it stay with us? Such a pleasure to have you on uh, Pragyan Ricky. Thank yes. you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I I've heard a, a few conversations about uh, you know how you've basically developed your own voice, and you know you've often said that being authentic is really crucial uh, to the music. And so I'm really curious to know over the many years you know that you've grown, uh, how have your own personal beliefs developed, and how does that now reflect in your music? So I guess. Uh, Uh, when it comes to especially making music in india and independent music because india is predominantly a film uh, market as they say when it comes to entertainment and uh, when i tell people i'm a composer the first question they ask me is which film you know so that's how deeply integrated <laughs> yes. uh, the music industry is with the film industry so i believe that uh, you know if you are an independent musician uh then most people crave for uh, international recognition uh because it's very rare that you get recognition from within your own country if you look at most of the greats like you know like uh, pandit vishwamohan bhat or or rather if you look at pandit ravi shankar yes. um he ended up moving abroad you know because he felt that he got uh, more recognition for his music or he felt that you know more people respected his music outside of india than in india if you look at anushka if you look at uh, ustad zakir hussain ustad ali akbar khan ustad allah rakha all of them ended up uh, you know moving abroad and basing their career more and more outside of india than in india so i believe that uh, uh, but at the same time in india when uh, there is an independent musician especially a younger musician they feel that in order to get international recognition uh, the only way for them to do that is to perform english music or to perform western forms of music western forms of hip hop or pop or Uh, all of that stuff uh, whereas that is not the case at all because of the examples that i just mentioned to you that the people who have actually gotten international recognition uh, from india are people who stayed true to their roots people who actually dug deep into their own roots and they figured out what is it that makes them uniquely indian and they created music based on that you know for the uh, world for, for the world to listen to and uh, the world loves them simply because they were authentic and people love 
artists who are authentic to themselves and artists who are creating music based on their own sensibilities rather than trying to understand or trying to uh, shoot in the dark as to what somebody else would like to listen to. Uh, so the, that is something that I realized at a very young age. Uh, at a very young age, I remember watching a Pandit Ravi Shankar concert, who's been one of the greatest inspirations in my life. And I remember watching his concert in uh, in the Bay Area. And uh, while I was watching his concert, what really struck me was that this man, this gentleman is playing pure Indian classical music and pure traditional music. And uh, the audience is extremely varied and extremely diverse. It's not just the Indian diaspora that showed up there, like what happens normally at a Bollywood show when it happens outside of India. True. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the demographic of the audience inside that uh, theater were very representative of the demographic of the city itself. So I realized that he has broken cultural barriers. He's truly broken cultural barriers, uh, playing music that is purely Indian just because everybody felt that he was authentic to himself and he was playing something that was pure, not just pure from an instrument perspective or from a Hindustani classical perspective, but pure as in music that was coming truly from his heart. Yeah. And uh, and he was connecting with the audience. Uh, so that's what I decided that that's exactly what I want to do. I want to connect with the audiences and I want to break cultural barriers through my music. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, uh, I think you've been doing that and you've got an uh, immense amount of international recognition, three Grammys, <laughs> just because... I think your music resonates, you know, across cultures. And uh, I also recall you talking about an anecdote where you created music and collaborated with uh, someone where the other person didn't know English at all. Correct. And you started to talk and then just magic happened, right? And uh, please tell me a little bit about that anecdote. But I also I'd like to know much more where you have seen now in your career where sometimes the connections you're making while you're making music is far superior than anything else that you can do through verbal communication. Yeah, definitely, because music is a beautiful uh, language for communication. And uh, uh, the anecdote that you mentioned was that uh, I was creating this album in 2016, or it was 2015 actually. And uh, there was this Algerian violin player who I absolutely loved and I thought that uh, he was he's a brilliant musician. And I wanted to collaborate with him. So I went to Algeria and uh, I sat with him in the studio. And uh, we could not communicate with each other because the only language he knew was Arabic. And uh, the only language that I know is English and, you know, in bits and pieces of Hindi. And uh, <laughs> so I barely can speak any other language. And, uh, you know, and I was finding it very difficult to communicate with him. And for a person like him living in Algeria, even communicating through sign language becomes really, really, uh, you know, difficult because uh, our, uh, our communication points and our reference points itself is very different. You very know? true, yeah. So uh, communication becomes really difficult. And it became a very frustrating experience where I was not able to communicate what the meaning of the song was or what I wanted wanted to achieve through the song. Uh, but then what happened was that uh, uh, towards the end of that recording session, I just started playing something on the piano. And then he just opened up his violin case, pulled out his violin and started playing along with me. And then we just hit the record button and we did that for about two hours. Wow. And uh, it was quite amazing, actually, that uh, how he was responding to my music. And I did not have to explain anything about the emotions to him. He was just responding to whatever I was playing and he was responding in the exact same emotion that I had while I was playing the music. Yeah. So I really got through this person when we were divided uh, through language barriers, through political barriers, through reference barriers, through communication barriers, but just music, we just, uh, you know, uh, music got us through. And that happens time and again, actually, uh, especially with musical forms that are more improv, which, which have a lot of uh, improvisation in it. 
like for example when it comes to western classical music everything is always written on a sheet yeah and everybody look at the sheet and they play whatever they want to play i mean whatever they have to play and uh, and that's how an orchestra works that everybody comes together in harmony because everybody has got a part to play in this whole ensemble of a of an orchestra and uh, so western classical music is all about discipline it's all about reading what's on a sheet and it's all about uh, uh, interpreting what is on the sheet and interpreting the uh, ancient great composers and things like that but when it comes to indian classical music whether it's carnatic classical music or hindustani or if you look at uh, jazz music or if you look at any kind of uh, ancient cultural form of music it has always been about expressing yourself and uh, you know and improvising as much as possible so much so that a musician cannot play the same thing twice like i collaborate with pandit vishwamohan but very often and we've done lots of concerts all over the world together and with him he never plays the exact same thing twice at a concert like there is a solo piece that he has to play let's say a 32 bar piece like let's say a 2 minute solo that he has to play and uh, you know i'm on my keyboards and he's usually sitting right in front of me like you know uh, facing the audience he's usually seated over there and uh, you know and i'm uh, and when it's time for his solo it's almost like you know that i'm playing something very minimalist because i just want to see what he's going to come up with right <laughs> now and how he's going to wow me so i become almost like a member of the audience and um, and you know and he knows that that that's what happens you know and he plays something special every time because he knows that you know that i'm going to be i'm going to compliment him on it at the end of the session you know so so that's how it is and that's why i love uh, performing with indian classical musicians but well, that's a very special relationship no i mean he almost knows and understands that uh, his role also in collaborating with you is to push himself and cre- really create that wow moment every time so no just uh, to get me smile you know yeah. he loves getting me to smile during those moments so sure. that's what happens sure. yeah sure that's also i think speaks to a great friendship i'm sure you've you've collaborated many times together it's of course uh, I mean that I would love to call it a friendship but it's more about uh, tremendous respect from my side to him you know so it's about him me treating him like a guru but of course like you know there is a lot of friendship within all of that so you know you you touched upon very interesting things one is i think just the foundation of our indian classical music is a lot around freedom i think that's what i heard you say Correct. Uh, which is yeah, fantastic absolutely and then the second thing is you did something very special you know you spoke about an orchestra and recently you were in in london uh, you know at an at an iconic studio and an uh, iconic rather uh, philharmonic where you brought everyone together uh, tell me a little bit more about that experience cuz when i heard the music i was totally blown away so when it comes to an orchestra itself uh, i do love performing with orchestras too um and uh, so i've performed with orchestras all over the world and uh, some of the best orchestras all over the world and uh, one thing that happens whenever i conduct an orchestra or whenever i record an orchestra is that uh, what really mesmerizes me is that it's got all these different instruments an orchestra like for example you've got a violin which is a very soft instrument and then you've got a tuba which is a very very loud instrument then you've got a harp which is again a very soft and melodic instrument then you've got a timpani which is like uh, like a percussion instrument which is super loud and then you've got a bassoon you've got uh, french horns which are very loud then you've got pianos you've got all of that instruments now every instrument uh, maintains their own unique personality a violin is never trying to be a tuba a tuba is never trying to be a a, a a trumpet a trumpet is never trying to be a timpani a timpani is never trying to be a harp a violin is a violin it maintains its own unique personality same thing with the harp same thing with all these other instruments but somehow when everybody come together they play in beautiful harmony and it somehow works you know that every the, all the instruments come together beautifully and all of them sound as one they sound as a beautiful collective so that is what always reminds me of our country india 
you know because india if you look at it we've got so many uh, so much of diversity when it comes to religions when it comes to ethnicities when it comes to cultures when it comes to culinary preferences languages all of that stuff you you drive like uh, 300 kilometers in any direction you're going to find a completely different language completely different food completely different uh, behaviors of uh, of uh, of our uh, citizens and yeah. all of that stuff but somehow the whole country comes together as one you know like uh, somehow it comes together in beautiful harmony yes. and nobody needs to follow anybody everybody needs to maintain their own ideology their own uh, thoughts their own philosophies but somehow everything comes together so that is why i wanted to record our indian national anthem with an orchestra and my favorite orchestra in the whole world is the royal philharmonic orchestra i've collaborated with them multiple times got in touch with them I told them that let's do it with hundred members. You know, normally an orchestra has seventy-five to eighty members. So this time it was hundred. Abbey Road Studios, the place where we recorded, is the only studio that can actually accommodate the hundred musicians. So we recorded over there, and uh, they've also not recorded a hundred musicians for a very very long time till then. So they were quite excited about it. And uh, yeah, so then I managed to I conducted the orchestra, and I it was three months of preparation of writing all of those scores on the sheets so that we could tell every member as to what they had to play. And then uh, the recording itself took an hour because um, yeah, you I mean this the anthem is just about a minute actually it's fifty three seconds. Yeah. And uh, uh, even if even though we uh, rehearsed it about fifteen times, it was just fifteen minutes. <laughs> and then after that we recorded it another 15 times that was again of 15 minutes so it took about an hour for us to record it and uh, it was amazing and of course there was a lot of subtext over there because at the end of the day the british ruled us for over 200 years and uh, we were not allowed to sing the national anthem we were not allowed to hoist the indian national flag and uh, now an indian composer conducting a hundred of their finest musicians at their most iconic studio <laughs> and performing the indian national anthem that also gave me a high i cannot uh, deny that <laughs> for sure i think yeah. you know there's uh, i'm almost getting a vicarious pleasure right it's just like you know you you got the high i think all of us sitting here listening also felt the same amount of uh, patriotism when at least you know when i saw how that came out it's just absolutely spectacular you know how you can resonate with it and these are all people like you said firstly uh, you know not them but their earlier uh, generations were ruling us but how they have played it with so much commitment i think each Correct. one of them have i'd actually mentioned to them before the uh, performance i actually uh, i actually gave them a short speech like you know to sort of motivate them so i told him that this is the largest symphony orchestra to ever record the indian national anthem and this is a amazing gift that they can give to 1.4 billion indians and also said told them that you know that after you guys have ruled us for over 200 years <laughs> you owe this to us you know <laughs> payback time <laughs> so they, they they of course laughed it off but there was a lot of meaning they felt a lot of meaning in this because as i said i've uh, recorded with them in the past and i've collaborated with them in the past and i did not find this kind of energy ever before uh, they really really wanted to give it their best that's really nice yeah um you also have uh, shared publicly about you know this conversation you which you had with uh, prime minister modi at one point and you know you said that the conversation you had has impacted your music deeply Hugely. since then yep. um i would like to know a little bit about that conversation and also how you've seen that because this was sometime in 2015 if i'm not exactly. mistaken so now you know it's been about 8 uh, years almost Correct. since that and if you could just pick out moments where you have sort of reminded yourself of that conversation and then pivoted away from maybe what you were thinking of doing so i've always been two things in my life i've always been an environmentalist and i've always been a musician so two pillars that have dictated everything that i've done every single life decision that i've ever made now uh 
So when I became a professional musician uh, at the age of about 18, 19, uh, that is when, uh, you know, I was making, I was making a lot of commercial music for television and radio and all of that stuff. And I was also making music on the environment, but not all of my music reflected it. Uh, and to be honest, I wasn't even living the life. During those days, I had three cars and, you know, and um, all of that stuff. I'd, uh, even though I was an environmentalist, I like to enjoy life. And some of, the, some of that enjoyment meant it was not in collaboration with the environment, but sometimes going against the environment. Uh, then uh, what happened was that in 2015, after I won my first Grammy Award, when I met Prime Minister Modi, uh, so I was told that it's going to be a five-minute photo op, but it ended up being almost an hour-long discussion where we discussed a lot about our philosophies on the environment, he told me that he was going to be going for the climate change conference in Paris later on that year. And he told me what he was going to be saying in his speech over there. And, you know, so it was a very, very interesting conversation. And uh, that is when Prime Minister Modi, he sort of like, you know, inspired me that, uh, you know, to lead the life and to, uh, you know, and to dedicate my life and my career entirely to this cause since I'm so passionate about it. So I took that very seriously when I left his office. And I thought that, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead the life and I'm going to, uh, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to ensure that every single piece of music that comes off my head or, you know, comes out of my studio, comes off my fingers is going to be about, uh, is going to be about the environment or positive social impact around those areas. Uh, so that is... Uh, something uh, meaningful, basically, some, you want to make sure. Something meaningful and something that, uh, uh, something that I want to express myself about. Uh, because at the end of the day, when it comes to all the environmental issues that we face today, it cannot be taken in isolation because everything is interrelated. Yeah. I believe that in India, especially, or in any country in the global south, there are only two kinds of problems. There's a problem of survival and there's a problem of thriving. That's all. And environment and uh, climate change, climate action, all of these things in a developing nation or a nation in the global south is always looked upon as more of a problem of thriving. Yes. Whereas problems of survival are more immediate issues like poverty, hunger, malnutrition, education, water, sanitation, gender inequality, gender violence. These, these are things that are looked upon as more immediate problems and, and rightly so. True. Uh, but the environment also is a problem of survival when it comes to climate change especially. It's the biggest existential threat we've ever faced. But it's not looked upon as that way because the effects of climate change are not immediate, especially in our country. And we look at things that are more immediate like health and things like that. So that is why in order to get people to buy into uh, the whole climate issues and all of that stuff, one has, to solve, one has to have a very holistic view towards problem solving. And that's what I've made my mission, that it has to be a very holistic view and a very realistic view. Because you cannot leave people behind. Everybody's got their dreams. Everybody's got their aspirations. So we have to have a very realistic view towards development and, uh, and uh, developing as sustainably as possible. No, you touched upon some uh, really important issues and I think the first thing I want to get into is just exactly what you said where a lot of us always feel that uh, the change that needs to happen to be environmentally sustainable is something that my neighbor needs to do because I'm of exactly. course leading the perfect life, right? Exactly, so, exactly. So, you know, what are maybe some of the changes you made uh, personally and also if you can share what that journey was like because I think a lot of us are wanting to make those changes but one, we don't know where can we find those sustainable, uh, you know, choices. Um, and also, it's always looked upon as something which is extremely expensive to do. Uh, you know, that if you want to lead a sustainable life is something which is for the privileged. Uh, not every average human being can do that, though I think it's changing. So I'd love to just get your perspective on it. So yeah, so there are four things that I follow in my life. Uh, so I can uh, name them and quickly tell you about each of them. So one is that I don't subscribe to fast fashion. 
uh, fast uh, fashion, the fashion industry itself is quite a polluting industry. Uh, we've not sensitized ourselves to, uh, you know, to the fiber we wear. Uh, for example, if one were to buy a pair of jeans or cotton pants like what I'm wearing right now, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, it, it takes about between 14 to 15 cotton plants to make a cotton pam, uh, pant. We have to go all the way to how it is made. It's about 14 yeah. to 15 cotton plants. So it takes a large area of land, uh, which, which could be used to grow food. It could be used for many, many other purposes. But it takes a large area of land to grow those 14 cotton, plant plant, uh, cotton uh, plants. And then after that, you have to water it continuously. It takes 150 days to harvest. So that's almost five months it takes yeah. to harvest. And then, uh, so that's the amount of water that goes into it. And then after that, it's plucked and then uh, it's sent to a completely different country with a large carbon footprint because it's transported to a completely different country for processing. Then after that, weaving to another country, dying to another country, and then manufacturing to another country and then sent to lots of lots of countries for sale. So basically, the water footprint, leave, leave aside the carbon footprint, the water footprint of a single pair of cotton pants is said to be 8,000 liters of water. So that's the amount of water. Okay. And imagine that's the amount of water you'll save if you just don't buy one pair of jeans or one cotton, uh, one pair of cotton pants. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with T-shirts. T-shirts are said to be between 3,000 to 4,000 uh, liters of uh, water. So the thing is that, uh, as I said, we need to sensitize ourselves to the fiber that we wear. And uh, we need to rewear our clothes. Now, there are a lot of sustainable choices when it comes to fashion, but I do not believe in that because uh, the reason being that uh, those sustainable choices, maybe they are slightly more biodegradable than other choices, but you're still consuming your fiber. True. So, so the water footprint still remains. The carbon footprint still remains. Yeah. So the, Might the be less, but still is there. It's there. So the solution to it is very simple, that uh, buy, buy good quality clothes and wear them for a very long period of time and rewear your clothes. So I started this hashtag known as rewear for earth rewear and then the numeric four and earth where I encourage everybody to double down on this, like go to events, especially people who are living, living in cities because we live in bubbles, you know, so go to events, wear the same costume, post it on Instagram and, sh and double down on it that, you know, I'm wearing the same costume. I bought a Sherwani for my, uh, when I won the Grammy award earlier this year in, uh, in February. Yes. And it was a cream Sherwani. And since the time I won that Grammy, I've worn that Sherwani for over 50 concerts. So that is the way wow. it is, you know. And uh, so, so basically double down on it. Kate Middleton does it all the time. Yes. Uh, uh, she's basically the, the future queen of uh, England. And she constantly rewears her clothes. Yes. Uh, and she doubles down on it. So that's what we all need to do. Then the second thing is basically I do not own a car now. So at one point in time, I used to own three cars. That's and, huge. Uh, yeah. Now I don't own a car. And uh, so basically, uh, because I realized that, uh, you know, that I used to use public transportation whenever I would leave the city and I would go abroad or whatever. Why can't I learn that in my own city? And when there's a critical mass of people who uh, use public transportation, public transportation will automatically improve. And also, again, this is a problem in the global south where people feel that if they've bought a car, then they cannot move backwards. <laughs> You know, that you cannot yeah. go to a cycle. Yes. Cycle is like uh, is like for the underprivileged. It's lowering your status, It's lowering right? your <laughs> status. And then, uh, like, for example, my father, he uses the bus all the time. And uh, he's a Marwadi. So, you know, he's a Kanjus guy. So <laughs> Different even values. Though wealthy, <laughs> even though he's wealthy. No, but it's also about the environment yeah. that uh, he does that. So he uses the buses all the time. 
and my mom's a Punjabi on the other hand, and she's the biggest show off you can imagine on yeah. this planet. You know, like her polar is, opposites. Her name is Pammi, so you can imagine. Okay? <laughs> okay. So, so, so the thing is that sometimes a friend of hers huh. sees my father getting into a bus, and she tells my mom that you know, I, Pammi, I saw your, uh, I saw your husband getting into a bus. My mom comes home and she throws a fit. <laughs> How dare, how can you do this to me? You know, how can you go in a bus? My friend saw you going in a bus. They think we do not have any money. So that is the problem with public transportation right now, yes. you know. And uh, we, we, uh, so basically that, I do not own a car. The third thing is that I get my carbon footprint audited every, uh, every quarter, mm -hmm. just like how people get their finances audited. And, uh, and I have a meeting as to how we can reduce that carbon footprint because it cannot go to zero simply because of the way we've built our systems around us. Uh, but uh, but we figure out ways to reduce the carbon footprint and to keep my mind at ease, I uh, mitigate my carbon footprint through um, uh, through tree plantations and through uh, investment in renewable energy startups. Okay. Um, uh, I, I do not believe that uh, that mitigating uh, you know carbon footprint is uh, is uh, is in any way good for the environment, but it keeps our mind at ease. Uh, the the best way to do this is to reduce a carbon footprint to the minimum possible. And the last thing is that I I eat a meat free diet. Mm -hmm. I'm an aspiring vegan, uh, but I've not been able to get there because of my traveling and all of that stuff, and because of my hectic schedule. So basically, I'm 100% vegetarian, but I'm an aspiring vegan. But of course, when it comes to meat. Uh, I believe that that is a very, very personal choice simply because there are a lot of cultural implications, a lot of nutritional implications. So this should never be forced on anybody. Nobody should be shamed for being a vegetarian, being a uh, non-vegetarian. Non uh, it's just a personal decision that everybody has to make looking at, uh, looking at the effects of this. And lastly, one last thing that I'd like to mention is that during the pandemic, in spite of me doing all of these things, in the pandemic, I realized something very uh, uh, crazy about myself is that uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, you know, there used to be somebody who would throw my garbage out, right? I did not even, I was not sensitized to it. I would not know how much of garbage I'm putting out. I would not know who's picking up the garbage yeah. or how the garbage leaves the home. I had no idea about all of that. Then uh, my staff had to leave uh, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So then I had to pick up the garbage and take it out. And then I learned that there's this a truck that comes in every morning at 7.30 and I have to I have to put out my garbage before 7.30, otherwise it's not taken out. Yeah. And I realized that I'm putting out two buckets of garbage every single day. And then I realized this is absolute nonsense. Hmm. So then I decided that, okay, the way that I'm going to reduce my carbon footprint is that I'm going to reduce my garbage. Because if I can aim to make my garbage into half a bucket, I'm going to make all of these decisions, you know, yeah. that I'm not going to buy stuff with a lot of packaging. I'm going to reuse everything. I'm going to think twice before throwing anything. I'm going to upscale stuff. I'm going to reuse stuff. I'm going to have a more circular economy in the way that I deal with stuff. Uh, so that is what I did. I worked really hard. And in a month's time, I managed to reduce it to half a bucket. And that's what I've done now. So I guess my advice to people is that try to reduce the amount of garbage you put out. And then that way you will start making a lot of decisions which will be more environmental friendly. Yeah, no, may, makes sense. I mean, you just work backwards, right? If you're looking at that outcome, then you will make every other life choice to align with that. Correct. Um, I also want to just come back to, you know, other things that you said where, you know, when the conversation you had with Modiji, he was at that time going to Paris yes. and it was almost like a full circle where when he was in Paris more recently, yes. you were there as well uh, because you were invited by, by Macron and it was great to see you there. Um, tell me, have also, as India, are we being received differently now around the world? Are we being perceived differently? I'd love to get your views because, you know, you also travel around as a UN ambassador. What are your views on that? No, definitely we are perceived differently because in the past... 
um, at least I can tell you this through my roles in the UN, uh, that uh, India was always looked upon as a country that never never uh, participated in any discussions, you know. India was always on the sidelines and India would just go with the flow. That's all, you know. Yeah. And uh, But then uh, that was not the right way to go about it because with such a huge population in India, uh, we cannot have just a leader for our country. We need to have a world leader, somebody who really understands geopolitics and somebody who understands that we need to be a part of all these decisions that are happening in the world. So right now, India has come to a different stage where we are not only participating in these discussions, uh, but we are also taking leadership. You yeah. know, and uh, India is looked upon right now as the leader of the global south and rightly so. Uh, you know, because of our GDP, because of our population, because of the power that we have, the soft power, all of that stuff, we ought to be a leader of the global south. And um, and also we are looked upon as being a third uh, superpower. Yes. So, so all of these things are extremely important uh, for India. And even when I was in Paris for the state dinner organized by uh, President Macron and Bridget, uh, the thing is that uh, over there also, I saw the relationship that Prime Minister Modi had with uh, with uh, President Macron. It was it was a relationship of mutual respect, of friendship, and it was. Uh, and since I was seated, and I was very honored to be seated right next to uh, President Macron, so it was me, President Macron, and <clears throat> sorry, and Prime Minister Modi. So three were sitting together. So I was very privy to the conversations that they were having, and it was amazing listening to the two leaders speak as to how much of respect they had for each other. Uh, the kind of high-level talks they were having, and also the banter also that the two of them had. It was it was absolutely amazing. And it made me feel that, you know, that finally India is coming of age. And now, since India has gotten so much of visibility through this, through geopolitics and uh, through our prime minister visiting various countries and through, um, you know, uh, through uh, our leadership that we are taking uh, in various international causes. And like, for example, in the G20, we were responsible for the African Union uh, yes. getting a seat on the table. All of these things and yoga becoming a, uh, getting an international day by the United Nations and International Year of Millets this year. Yes. So all of this stuff. What happens is that this trickles down to the artists for sure. Hmm. Because people, when they want to know more about a country, they want to know more about the art, the music and all of that stuff. The history, the heritage. The yeah. heritage, the traditions, the culture, all of that stuff. And I've seen that there is a huge interest in my music because of that. Hmm. Uh, a huge renewed interest in my music because of this. Because suddenly everybody's got tremendous respect for India. And when they've got tremendous respect for India, they get tremendous respect for the art forms and the artists and all of that stuff. And people want to hear more of Indian music in their festivals. People want to hear more of Indian music at their uh, in their concert halls. And, you know, and so there is a little bit of mainstreamization hmm. that is happening when it comes to Indian forms of music, uh, which I've not seen happening before. And uh, this is happening because of the visibility overall that India is having in the rest of the world. Yeah, and I mean, you know, to your point, I think there are more conversations where it's uh, a conversation amongst equals as opposed Correct. to, you know, a lot of these developed countries, uh, you know, talking at us. I think we're now, yes. we have talking a voice. Talking down to us, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we now we have a sort of a voice on the same table. Definitely. Um, very interesting what you said about how you're having the positive rub off as well, where you're now representing your music and getting many more opportunities and invited. 100%. Amazing. Yeah. That's, that's, is it also you're seeing a lot of curiosity amongst young people around the world? So are many more people uh, DMing you or reaching out to you to figure out where are you playing next? And are you also now becoming like a phenomenon, like how we track maybe Coldplay around mm -hmm. the world? Are there many more people sort of really wanting you to come down and play? So my career is more and more been abroad than in uh, yeah. than over here. Uh, uh, 
So, so for me, it has been sort of like a dichotomy in this respect, you know, that I've always had a career outside of India. And then I started, uh, once I won my first Grammy Award, then I started having a career in India. And that has been building up exponentially, which is which I'm very grateful for, uh, because it's great to be appreciated by your own country. And uh, because right now, um, just how I was talking about the curiosity and all of that stuff and how people outside of India have been appreciating uh, Indian music and culture. Mm -hmm. We Indians also have been appreciating our own culture. For a change. For a change. So that's what's been happening, you know, because previously it was uncool, you know, to play Indian instruments. It was uncool to be an Indian classical musician. Even if you look at advertisements uh, that were made uh, in India. When you when when an advertisement or a movie wanted to show an uncool person, hmm. that uncool person would be wearing a lungi or a dhoti, or that uncool person would be playing a sitar or a veena or a harmonium. Uh, uh, if somebody had to go, uh, if if they had to show like a hero or heroine are in a very boring situation, it would be a Hindustani classical concert. Very now, stereotyping. It was stereotyping our culture as being extremely boring, extremely yeah. backward. And something that is very uncool. Yeah. Whereas that has changed now. Now you will never see that happening right now because everybody is now proud of our uh, of our Indian instruments. We are proud of our Indian uh, musical forms and uh, classical forms and even our tribal forms. All of that. Uh, all of that is changing. So, so that's the reason why I'm getting more accepted over here and also outside. So, as uh, coming back to your question, yes, I do have a set of very loyal fans in Europe and. In uh, in America, in Canada, in Australia, and all of that, all of these places. So whenever I perform in these places, then you know I'm able to fill up a stadium or I'm able to fill up a concert hall uh, because uh, they are constantly waiting for me to either perform over there or to release some new music, and and I see that happening uh, slowly in India too. Yeah, I mean, I think they also connect with your message, right? I'm yeah. sure at some at some level because I think there are so many artists who are playing music and we all listen to them. But I think when there's a clear value that an artist brings to their music and in your case, it's the environment, I think there's a special kind of connection and bond that people tend to build. It, it works both ways, actually. Okay. Uh, that's why a lot of uh, musicians and a lot of actors and actresses, they try not to be associated with the cause uh, simply because they feel that um, associating with the causes is a little divisive sometimes because everything is associated with politics nowadays. Yeah. Uh, so that is one reason. And the second reason is that they feel that uh, uh, they feel that people have got their own worries, uh, which is a valid argument that people have got their worries. People um, anyway are leading very difficult lives. And uh, when they come to a concert or when they come to watch a movie, they do not want to be worried even more. They, uh, want to be they do not want to be shamed into action. Or they do not want to be shamed into the kind of lives that, I mean, shamed about the lives that they're leading, which is irresponsible or whatever. So they just want to go, they just want to be entertained. And I used to, you know, for some time I used to feel that entertainment should not be just for entertainment's sake, you know. There needs to be a message, there needs to be a cause associated to it or whatever. Then I remember uh, watching this episode of Friends. Uh, you know the uh, American sitcom. Of course, uh, they had this. Uh, they had this reunion episode, which came out, I think, last year or the year before that. Yes. Uh, and I was watching this reunion episode because I'm a fan of the Friends, and I was watching the reunion episode, and they sort of uh, had these video bites from people all over the world speaking about how, when they were depressed, they would uh, they would watch Friends, and how Friends uh, prevented a person from actually committing suicide, 
or uh, you know or uh, a person who was uh, who had lost his mother and basically you know he would watch friends and you know and uh, he would uh, bug themselves he up. would bug them uh, he, he would forget his worries and he would forget his uh, sorrow yeah so then you start realizing that entertainment for entertainment's sake also has got its place you know and one should not be very idealistic about what entertainment should be and then uh, after watching that episode is when i started having a newfound respect for a lot of people who are just you know entertainers you know because they are also serving a very very important uh, uh, purpose you know of yeah. uh, of entertaining people who need the entertainment in their life you know yeah and just a you know just a casual laugh just uh, a casual which laugh. is what friends really was exactly yeah i mean exactly. i think we all go back to it right at and some point and not at the expense of anybody yeah so that's where it was a casual laugh which was not uh, at the expense of uh, a, a a kind of people or are they so basically you know what i'm trying to say is that it very was just humor. it was just neutral yeah, humor yeah, yeah yeah no i agree and you know you touched upon something very interesting which is around you know the impact of even music on mental well being <coughs> is huge um i see even you know many more apps now that that are that are coming up use music as a way to soothe uh, people have you also seen that through your music or through your other experiences where you know you're feeling down and out and it happens to me often you listen to some music it changes your mood and then you're back out again almost ready to face the world but i'm doing it more with a you know i'm i'm generally mentally well but i know that it has impacted people who are also struggling with uh, very serious issues um, any views that you have on that or you've seen some change come along the music obviously has some sort of an effect on our on our brains uh it has some it has a it has a very profound effect on our well-being and on our mental wellness but then again i think the amount of research that needs to go into it has not been done yet mm-hmm. and that is something that i hope to do in the next few years because there are two aspects that you have to look at over there over here one is that what is the kind of music that gives you as an individual respite like for example for me sometimes i'm really stressed and i'm uh, and my mind is completely cluttered and i'm not able to think straight sometimes what declutters my mind hmm. is basically heavy metal music because i've been listening to heavy metal music since my childhood and i there are lots of artists who i'm a huge fan of right and i end up listening to like a, a pantra album or a metallica album or a megadeth album you know one of these heavy metal artists and that really declutters my brain sometimes when i'm driving and i'm really angry what gives me uh what gives me solace is basically you know rock music or heavy metal music and that will probably sound like noise to you yeah so that and then it's the same thing with different forms of music like for example a folk music from let's say from central africa for me it may sound completely like noise uh but for them it will sound soothing yeah. so it has to be completely individualized and there needs to be some sort of brain mapping or whatever done on an individual to figure out what kind of music has what kind of an effect on the person and on the other hand uh i've got a friend who's a south african and i remember we were watching a movie called ai together it was a steven spielberg movie mm-hmm. and the whole music had uh, the whole film had very ambient music in the background you know very soft which would be considered meditative music that would be on the apps that you mentioned uh mindfulness apps and things like that and about like 30 or 40 minutes into the movie he got up and he walked out of the theater because he said that that music is really disturbing i can't handle that music oh wow so that's what so it triggered him right it triggered him so that is what so everybody has got a different reaction to music and also the the same if music can have a positive effect on your mind it can also have a negative effect yeah. so we cannot play around with uh you know with uh, having a one size fits all approach when it comes to music it needs to be individualized and the second thing is how you're listening to the music because you could be listening to music on earphones mm-hmm. it could be a bad quality mp3 file which could disturb you even further yeah and also the acoustic environment if you're listening to it in my studio like what we are in right now music will sound good 
But that same speaker, if you take it into a bathroom, which has got all this echo and all of that stuff and and reverberation, it'll sound terrible in the bathroom. So basically, what kind of an acoustic environment you're listening to it in, what kind of a quality of the digital file that you're listening to the music. Also, if I need to go further, uh, one more thing that I can tell you is that previously we had analog recording for music yes. and now we have digital. Analog music was in waves, like on cassette tapes, on LPs, on vinyls, mm-hmm. on uh, uh, you know, on 8-track cartridges and all of that stuff. It was uh, on uh, on uh, quarter-inch tape, yeah. not CDs, but okay, uh, yeah. Quarter quarter-inch tape and all of that stuff, that was all analog. So it was in waves. Right. So sometimes the quality wasn't that great because the quality deteriorates the more and more you're listening to analog music because there is wear and tear of the analog medium that you're actually recording the music on. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, it felt very pure because it's in waves. Whereas nowadays with digital recording, Hmm. you've got formats like 16-bit, you've got 24-bit, you've got 32-bit float. Now how these things work is that They've got bits that are recorded, you know. Of course, it sounds pristine and beautiful and clear and it is forever, the recording. It does not deteriorate the recording. But it's recorded in bits. And your brain is working over time while you're listening to that music to fill up those bits. Because it's not in waves. Okay. So the thing is that, so that is why nowadays, if you look at it, what I believe, and this is completely my thoughts, that uh, previously you could listen to music for hours and hours. But right, and plus songs, you could listen to a song which is about seven or eight minutes. But now... The standard format of a song is two minutes to three minutes. Yes. Above three minutes, nobody's got the attention span. And I believe it is because of this that we, our brains feel tired after we listen to music. And we, didn't, we, we feel that subconsciously, that our brains feel tired after we listen to music. So basically, because our you're constantly spans. active, like you're saying, you're trying exactly. to fill that gap as opposed to just relaxing and taking it in. Your brain is subconsciously filling in those gaps. And because of that, you feel tired when you listen to music. So you cannot listen to music for an extended period of time. And that's why most people fall asleep when they listen to music. So that's the thing. Because wow. I believe that because you feel tired. So so, so also the mindfulness and the, uh, the positive effect of music has to be measured in the medium that you're actually listening to music. That also becomes important. So there's to be enough research done on this before we can say that, okay, music is good for you. Because if music is good for you, it can also be bad for you. Very interesting. I never knew all of this. Thank you for sharing. No, seriously, because I think a lot of times now today when we are listening, not only listening to music, but like even on on scrolling on Instagram or anything, it's again the same dopamine hit that we are constantly looking for. And the reason I also mention this is because it also plays out in the choices in life that we make. We're constantly looking at immediate gratification. Absolutely. And some of the things that you're talking about in terms of the choices that we need to make for a better environment or even a better society are all around delayed gratification. Exactly. Exactly. Because in music also, that's what's happened. Previously, um, the only way for us to listen to music was on radio or on cassettes and all of that stuff. And you could not skip from song to song in a cassette. You had to listen to the whole album or you could not fast forward through a song. So you, once you put a cassette inside, you listen to the whole cassette. Or once you even put a CD inside, you yeah. usually listen. Even though you can skip songs, you usually listen to the whole thing. Same thing with the vinyls. And on radio, you just listen to what has been curated for you. So the, if a song has got a long intro or a song takes time for it to grow on you, <clears throat> you would allow it that time to grow on you. And I believe that a song that takes time to grow on you will take a very, very long time for it to leave you. You know, and that's why songs of the past stand the test of time where people say that now they don't make music like they used to do uh, in uh, like the old music and all of that stuff because those songs have stood the test of time whereas right now with digital music and with Spotify and with YouTube 
it's instant gratification because in the first 5 seconds if the song does not capture your imagination then there are multiple alternatives for you to go to so you just keep skipping and a song like let's say november rain hmm. a song by the, by guns and roses which has got like a two and a half three minute intro it's not possible for that song to survive in today's time if if it had released in today's time it would have gone nowhere it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have achieved the legendary status that it did in the past because people would have just skipped to the next song they wouldn't have listened to an instrumental intro for over two and a half to three minutes yeah so that's the way it is right now and that's the reason why musicians also are making songs where the hook line appears within the first 5 seconds because if they do not do that the best part of the song does not appear in the first 5 or 10 seconds then basically you've lost the audience completely and also in the past you would have pride of ownership you would have music in a physical media you'd keep it at home and friends would come home you would open it up put it into the player and show them that this is this new band that i discovered or whatever whereas right now leave let aside an mp3 you don't even want to have you would don't even want to use up the space on your phone to store an mp3 you just want to stream the music and that is why music has become very volatile and today's music will never stand the test of time because you listen to a piece of music on streaming for about 2 months or 3 months yeah. and after that it is forgotten and it's forgotten because it's streaming so it's forgotten and it's not going to remain in your life like on a shelf or whatever and secondly because the music itself is made to be forgotten it is made it is made for instant gratification and when something enters your head so quickly it is going to leave your head that quickly <laughs> Very well said. No, absolutely. It used to be an experience. Yeah, like even now, uh, you know, I have uh, friends who have turntables, and you like go. It's a whole experience. Correct. You pull out the old vinyl. You know, you talk about the artist, the music. When did you hear it for the first time? Look at the inlay card, and you learn more about the artist. You learn more about the song, how it was created, who the musicians were. Now you don't care about that. Yeah, I mean, if if it sounds good, you it sticks around. Correct. Uh, you don't even take a minute to go deeper. Correct. Like for me, I'll share an experience where, uh, you know, there's a song called "I Took a Pill in a Pizza" hmm. by Mike Posner, and you know, every time you heard this song, for me, it was in a lounge or a nightclub, and you were dancing to it, and you thought it was really peppy song. Yeah. And then I actually found out about him. It was a song which he made when he was trying to get off alcohol, get off cocaine, mm-hmm. and it's a de-addiction song. It's actually a very sad song. He's talking about his sad journey, and we're all like dancing to it because we've not really made the effort to find out, like you said, who is the artist, why did he sing it, what is the context, what's the message. Correct. There are um, many examples like that where people just listen to a song. Like another example is uh, is "Run to You" by uh, Brian Adams. Yes. So "Run to You" every Valentine's Day you'll see it played everywhere, <laughs> and then you start reading the lyrics, and you see that she's got a heart of gold, but that'll change if she ever found out about you and I. No, she's got a love for me that can never die. Yes. But that'll change if she ever found out about you and I. Oh, but her love is cold. It wouldn't hurt her if she didn't know. that when it gets too tough i need to feel your touch i'm going to run to you so it's basically about a guy having an affair <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and we're all singing it as a highest romantic I song <laughs> because only everybody only listen to the chorus you know i want to run to, to you, you. Yeah. oh it's such a romantic song <laughs> so you know growing up yes you're saying you know you listen to a lot of rock a lot of heavy metal but you know so who were your idols uh, when you were growing up and you know who you would you look up to in terms of not only music excellence but also just human values correct so one i already mentioned uh, pandit ravi shankar because of the way he led his life and the way he single handedly made indian music popular all over the world broke cultural barriers um, every time he would collaborate with somebody like let's say the beatles or madonna or duran duran or who, whichever the artist that he was collaborating with 
he was always playing his hindustani classical music yeah. he was always, it was not like he was playing an electric guitar or you know whatever he was always traditional and he was sticking to his roots and that's what i loved about him then uh, ustad nusrat fateh ali khan another uh, huge influence and this was basically a true story when i was in the 6th grade i think or the 5th grade i remember the, during those days there were walkman and somebody gave me a cassette of uh, night song a particular album that nusrat ustad nusrat fateh ali khan did with this uh, amazing uh, guitar player called uh, michael brooks it was a collaboration yes. between the two of them yes so there was a song called tadeem no lyrics in the song it just goes tadeem and lots of sargams and all that a 7 8 minute song very very intense song and somebody told me why didn't you listen to the song and i listened to it on my earphones and i remember i just started having tears come down my eyes and i was not feeling sad i was not feeling happy and i was wondering what the hell you know what is this and then i started realizing that i was just overwhelmed by this music you know it was just extremely an overwhelming experience and then i realized that okay this is the effect that i want to have on other people you know and i was already a musician by then then there was this other band another pakistani band a band called junoon and i remember watching them on television when i was in college and uh, i'm watching them and i'm like okay the singer who ali azmat now they've broken up the band mm-hmm. but uh, ali azmat the singer i'm like wow this guy's got a voice just like nusrat fateh ali khan yeah. but uh, there is this guitarist who's playing like heavy metal chords you know next to, and then there's a tabla player and then there's a drummer i'm like what is this what kind of music is this you know and then i start realizing that this is what fusion music is in a in its truest form where you're not trying to make a rock song you're not trying to make a pop song you're not trying to make a sufi song you're just trying to make a song yeah that's all and whatever whatever connects to you as a musician and whatever connects to the audience you're just trying to make that and you're trying to put it out you're not trying to consciously put in notes and scales and rags or you're not trying you're just trying to make a song that's all and whatever whether you need a celtic harp in it or you need to put in a dan bow into it or you need to put a koto into it or you need to put a harp into it whatever it is you know but just make a good song a song that connects and that's what started of my career in you know in fusion music because then i started realizing that okay the world is my playground mm. every single traditional form of music is my playground let me use all of this and try to you know may, then i started like you know learning all these different forms of music all over the world and trying to understand these different ideas and these different philosophies behind music and and all of these started getting incorporated into my music now when you uh, describe all of this to me it just seems so spiritual because you're you're talking a lot about just human values right which is the fact that just be yourself do what you do do that well and everyone else will just come around you and will all collaborate and create magic so uh, you know it's 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 incredible but when you started to go out and collaborate a lot more in your journey what were some of the challenges that you faced um, in terms of just different styles of music or also like you said language maybe cultural barriers anything that you could share will be interesting So first I'll touch upon the spirituality aspect that you mentioned. So I have to confess that I'm a complete and absolute atheist. Um I do not uh, believe in any form of god in any way, but I'm a cultural Hindu. Uh and a very proud cultural Hindu because I love the culture of Hinduism. I love the um you know I I love the Vedas, I love uh, what they stand for, I love the ideas of coexistence. um you know and uh, i love the ideas of respect you know and the five elements of nature protection con- uh, conservation all of that stuff is things that i've uh, i uh, feel very deeply about about mm-hmm. vasudhaiva kutumbakam all of these things uh but at the same time i do not pray to a god because i do not believe in any god um i uh, i'm also not at all spiritual mm-hmm. like uh, zero spirituality in me because what i believe is spirituality is that like for example if i were to see a beautiful sunset 
or if I would listen to a spectacular piece of music like what I mentioned, Ustad Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan's voice, then sometimes my brain is so primitive that I cannot uh, uh, I cannot fully comprehend the beauty of what I'm looking at or what I'm listening to, what I'm experiencing. I cannot understand that beauty. And uh, so I, my brain is so primitive that I just attribute it to a higher plane or a higher level. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what people call spirituality, in my opinion. So if, so for me, if uh, I mean, a lot of people come to me and they say that, oh, I listen to your music and I had a spiritual experience or it felt very spiritual. Then I feel that I'm extremely successful because I've had that overwhelming effect on that person where they could not explain why they're feeling a certain sensation or why they're feeling the, the experience that they are, they are having. And uh, so that's what I believe, that every artist should have that so-called spiritual experience on their audiences or on their fans or on their uh, on the consumers of their art. Uh, because uh, because that would be the greatest compliment that they would achieve. Yeah, where you can just transcend, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, you've come uh, to Kana Shanti Vanam and you've interacted with Daji as yeah. well. And he always says that, you know, Western philosophy tells us that meditation is to think about the same thing Correct. all the time. Whereas if you look at it in, in Sanskrit, which is dhyana, it yeah. is actually to transcend the mind. Yeah, true, That true. is what we are trying to get true, to. True, true. Yeah. And then in terms of collaboration, your question... So, uh, collaborating is, uh, so let's put it this way, like I make a composition, mm-hmm. I make, I compose, uh, since I'm a composer, I make a composition and then basically I can do, I can get all the instrument sounds that I require out of the computer because technology is, has reached a stage where I can just play stuff on the keyboard and it translates to another instrument like a sitar or a veena or a flute or a guitar or a drums or whatever. The sounds, there is no problem with it. You can get any sound. So if I've got a very rigid view towards creation of music and I know exactly what I want and I want it to be only that way and I'm and I have that ego that this is the way that the music has to be then I do not need to collaborate with anybody I can just get every sound out of the computer and I can release music and there are a lot of musicians who are very successful doing this but at the same time uh, for me why the reason why I love collaborating with musicians especially musicians who improvise is that you're not just getting the sound of their violin, let's say, into your music. You're also getting the head into your music. Yeah. You're getting their life experiences. You're getting their music education. Uh, you're getting their experiences of working with other composers. Uh, you're getting all of that, their skill into it. So basically what they will do is that if you give them the ro- you give them the tune and you give them the room to improvise, they can take your composition to a whole new level. And they can take your composition into places where you never imagined your composition would go to. And that's what I like, the magic of collaboration, you know, where you just give them the freedom and you encourage them to think out of the box and then they will bring in all of that stuff into uh, your music. Sometimes they may go a little too far and then you have to rein them in uh, because at the end of the day, it's your vision. But then working with musicians is so beautiful in that way. So there is a little bit of compromise also while working when you're collaborating because you have to respect their opinions. You have to respect the opinions of the musician you're working with, even though it is your composition. Yeah. Sometimes they may, sometimes a musician may come up with an idea and uh, you may feel that this is not the right idea or this is not going with my vision, but you'll have to trust that musician that this musician is a better musician than me. So maybe this idea is good and then you'll grow to liking it. And I'll give you an example for that. My, uh, my Grammy winning album that is Divine Tides, it won two Grammys in 2022 and 23 this year. So that was a collaboration with Stuart Copeland, who is considered to be the greatest drummer in the history of music, was a drummer and founder of The Police and um, sold 75 million copies of his albums. He yeah. composed 50 uh, movie Hollywood movie soundtracks, uh, won five Grammys right up until then. Now it's seven because he won He's two with more you. with me. <laughs> so so now, so the thing is that um, he was my childhood ideal, idol. I literally grew up with 
uh, with uh, posters of him on my wall and all of that stuff. So when I collaborated with him, I made a decision that up until then I was always in control of my work. So I made a decision that every time he asks me to do something, I'm going to do it uh, irrespective of whether I think it's right or wrong. I'm just going to do whatever he asks me to do. I'm going to surrender and do whatever he asks me to do. I'm going to live with that for two weeks. And at the end of two weeks, if I still feel that it is not right, I will voice my opinion. So that's what I thought I'll do. And during the course of the year that we worked on the album, we would keep sending each other work because it is during the pandemic, right? Oh, yeah. And I had not even met him in person. Uh, but but we grew very, very close during that time with hundreds of phone calls, hundreds of Zoom calls, WhatsApp calls, and remote recording sessions and all of that stuff. So there were numerous times where he would tell me to do something and I would be like, that's not going to work. That's not at all what what's going to happen in this particular thing. Or he's mistaken. This time he's definitely mistaken. You know, this time he's gone too far or whatever. And then I would live with it for two weeks. And then I would be like, Thank God. And I use the word that phrase, thank God, all the time, even though I'm an atheist. But I would be like, thank God I did not listen to myself, you know, because now that I've lived with it and I've detached myself from my own opinions and I'm looking at it very objectively rather than subjectively. And I've uh, and uh, previously I looked at it when at a time when I was falling in love with all of my ideas. And now I'm looking at it uh, from the lens of like, you know, having lived with this for a while and listened to it for a while, I realized that he was definitely right. And this happened each and every time that he asked me to do something where I felt that. So that gave me a huge lesson in collaborating that sometimes you just have to surrender yourself to the collaboration. And then, uh, especially if the musician is more skilled than you, yeah. you have to surrender to the collaboration and then uh, uh, to the uh, to the idea. And then you have to live with it for a while. And then you have to realize that, you know, that the reason why you felt that your idea was better was that you were unreasonably falling in love with your own idea, you know. So that was the thing. No, great yeah. lesson. I mean, in every walk of life, yeah. you know, I can say even in, in the corporate world where, you know, sometimes um, you get so caught up with your own self uh, that you tend to believe that your idea is the best idea. And sometimes just staying quiet and going with the flow uh, allows you to see a different side of yourself. Absolutely. Um, and I, I am hearing that a lot coming out of you where at different stages in your life, you've tried to redefine your beliefs push yourself a little bit, Absolutely. whether that's mentally or, you know, in your own life choices. Are these things you do consciously or it's just a, it's just something that you're so self-aware that it keeps happening to you and that you're constantly tuned into what life and what experiences are telling you that you know you need to change? No, one thing that I've tried not to be uh, my whole life is to be delusional. <laughs> that is... Delulu. <laughs> <laughs> so that is something that I've tried my best not to be. Uh, even in the music business, for example, if you look at the music business today, uh, one cannot be just a musician. Uh, be, yeah. uh, like, you know, uh, of course, you have to be you have to be three things. One is that you have to be extremely skilled at what you do. That is very important. Second thing is that you have to be an entrepreneur because at any, any given point of time, you're trying to sell something and that something is basically you and your creations. You're always trying to sell that. So you have yeah. to be a really good entrepreneur. You have to be really good at presenting your work to the world. And the third thing is that you have to have leadership abilities because you're working with large teams of people. You're working with um, with filmmakers. You're working with uh, um, other musicians. You're working with orchestras. You're working with marketing personnel, record labels, all of that stuff, you know, uh, television channels, uh, social media people. So you're working with all of that. So basically you have to have the leadership abilities because you have to work with these large groups and uh, you have to showcase uh, uh, your authority sometimes on uh, on people, or sometimes you have to uh, you have to show your benevolence and you have to show your collaborative abilities. Yeah. So all of that comes under leadership, in my opinion. So the thing is that, uh, and if you are not, if you feel that you can just be a musician, and you know, if my music is good, people will listen to me. 
then basically you're automatically being delusional because that's not the way that the world works today. And it's the same thing with everything, you know, like uh, in the sense falling in love with your own ideas and uh, and not trying to grow as a musician. Like I can tell you one thing very candidly that um, I've won three Grammy Awards. I'm, I've won the most number of Grammy Awards that uh, any living Indian has. It's incredible. Uh, but I just, uh, it is incredible. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, and I'm sitting but, and having this conversation but, sometimes. It's like a penny drop moment no, for me. No, but let me come to the butt, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm not delusional because... Am I the most talented musician in India? Absolutely not. In fact, in Bangalore, my own hometown, in my own home city, right off the top of my head, without even thinking, I can name 50 musicians who are more talented than me. Like, I can just rattle out their names without even thinking. And these are musicians who I respect. These are musicians who I obviously know as being more talented than me. But at the same time, uh, am I the most hardworking musician? Absolutely, yes. And do I know how to apply my music? You know, in a, or do I know how to create music that connects with people? Yes, I know how to do that. And I probably know that know how to do that better than other people. So basically, one cannot be delusional. And for me, that is something that I constantly remind myself and I'm constantly having these reality checks with myself. And of course, I've got a very good feedback mechanism around me of people who are extremely honest with me about my music. And that is very, very important yeah. because I've got a lot of friends who are musicians and they used to be used to make extremely good music. There are so many filmmakers also. Yeah. You and I know about these filmmakers that filmmakers who used to make these amazing artistic movies. And then when you watch their films later on, you're like, is it the same guy who's made this film? Like, it's just shocking, you know, yeah. that what happened to them? How, how did this drop happen? You know, yeah. it's because they've just surrounded themselves with people who just love everything that they do, or at least pretend uh, that they love everything that they do. And the second thing is that they become delusional about the art form itself. They feel that they can take, now that they've reached a certain stage, they can take shortcuts into creating their art. They do not need to do the pre-production work. They do not need to do the groundwork. They need not do the foundational work. They can just, you know, jam with somebody and create a song and okay, people will like it. Yeah. I've had legends come and tell me that, you know, when I would record with them, that no, no, people just want to listen to my voice. It's okay. Like, you know, when they've given me a bad take or something like that. I've had legends tell me this or uh, instrumentalists who are like, you know, right at that top level instrumentalists. They play something and I'm like, you know, can we do another take? Uh, you know, because this was a little basura in this place or, uh. you know, we, I think we can do something better. No, no, people just want to listen to me. That's all. So you don't worry, you know, it'll become a hit song or whatever. My star power is enough. My star power <laughs> yeah. enough or like, you know, people will just eat anything that I do, you know. So people will just consume anything. So that is where, or or you have even the younger musicians who say that uh, they show me a song and and then I'm like, no, you need you need a lot more practice. You know, this is definitely not up to the mark. It's not even close to being professional. Then they're like, no, but my mom told me it's amazing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> or my grandmom says that you know I'm the best musician or whatever. What do you know about music? You know, <laughs> yeah. So so delusion happens everywhere, and you have to constantly have this reality check, and uh, you have to. Constantly remind yourself that, you know, you have to grow. And at the same time, you know, that uh, that you're not the best. You're never the best. No, I mean, now I know why you are so great. Because <laughs> now that you're telling me all this, this is the sign of somebody who is, all, all you know, always wanting to evolve and get better. And I agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, I am that person usually in my friend's uh, circle where uh, I think if you're asking me for an opinion, I'm doing a disservice to you if I'm telling you lies. I sometimes lie to people, but <laughs> but uh, the reason no, the, not I mean no, absolutely. I, I tell you, uh, there are uh, there are two situations. Okay. Somebody tells you, asks you for an opinion. Yeah. At a stage where where they can do something about it, you know. So yes. the, that is where I give honest opinion. Yes. But if something has already been released or post facto where they cannot do anything about it, yeah. And you're probably just going to hurt their feelings. 
then basically I'm probably and they're not a close friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Where uh, where uh, they will take something constructively, personally. or rather they'll take it personally. personally. Yeah. Then I'll just lie to them because yeah, yeah, yeah. because you don't want to become their enemy and you know and yeah. Yeah, and it's also if you're not helping them through the process, Correct. then it becomes more like uh, you know it pulls their confidence yeah. down. So I do, lies, of course, a very powerful word. What I would do is that I would find something positive and I would tell them that. You know, yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. what I would do. <laughs> But tell me, who was that person for you when you were growing up? Right, because I know your father was like. Dude, get your degree. Otherwise, yeah. you ain't going anywhere. No, my parents were very honest with me. Yeah, very, very honest and brutally honest. Yeah, because at some point they did not want me to be a musician, so they would be extremely on the other side. You know, <laughs> trying to almost discourage you. Trying right? to almost discourage me. So that was there. So they were very honest with me. My older brother, extremely honest with me. When he would not like something, he would just say that. Hmm. Uh, then I had a lot of friends who are musicians, so I would I would always work with musicians who, like even with Stuart Copeland, like you know, reaching out, you know, yeah. like working with musicians who are far better than me. So even while growing up, I would work with musicians who are far better than me, who would have nothing to lose if they would be honest with me. Uh, so that is what. So basically. And so no, I'll tell you why I'm asking you this is because <clears throat> you know that mother and that son who you spoke about is now ninety percent of the population in our country around most things. not just music but i think now we've surrounded ourselves with uh, i think your generation of parents or my generation where the first thing was we need the the way we pushed our children towards excellence was by telling them and being honest with them yes now no, it's the not. other way around no, right they're not. where no, they're not. everyone's dealing with their children as you know with kid gloves and oh yeah, beta yeah. you're the best right correct, and so correct. what is your really advice to those kids who are sitting in their room thinking because they have all this equipment they have all the wherewithal which you of course have worked very hard to achieve but they've got it on a silver platter and good for them but what do you what advice do you have to say to them for them to then benchmark themselves with the best and say where do i really stand because everyone around me is like you're amazing and you're great and then you go out there and you're not So there are two aspects to this. One is that, of course, I do not have children, and for good reason, uh, because <laughs> you're sensible. Because, not <laughs> that too, but uh, <laughs> but uh, more importantly, that uh, these are the questions that would keep me awake at night. What you just said, hmm. you know, like, how do you raise a child? You know, what's the correct way? What's the wrong way? And I do not want to. Uh, I do not want to make these wrong decisions unknowingly and ruin somebody's life. Mm -hmm. So that is one thing. There were many other reasons why I did not want to have children, but uh, they were just. way too many reasons uh uh not to have children and there was not a single reason why i should have children that's why i decided not to have children and of course if i at later on i'm 42 now but later on in my life if i feel this fatherly thing then i can always adopt because i would rather give a chance to somebody who's living rather than bring somebody new at that stage at least so that is that second thing is that about children about as you said like you know they've got all this equipment and everything has been democratized and you got social media to reach out to people you do not have to go through a gatekeeper that is a record label or a radio channel and stuff like that everything is free flowing yeah uh i would say that it depends upon what the aspiration of the child is and uh, what their definition of success is like for example you've got this influencer right now who's doing the rounds like ori yes so what is his definition of success right yeah. like you know the this ori guy because he's got like a million followers on instagram every single video of his goes into millions of views like 11 million 15 million views he's in the news every day people are talking about him on television now does he have any set talent in the traditional way absolutely not like no. in a, at least at least he's not showcased it till now 
like uh, you know that uh, that he's got some sort of a major award winning talent or something like that but then he's far more successful than most people who have got that traditional talent yeah. so i guess uh, children today i guess need to define need to make their own definition of what success is to them rather than uh, having like a textbook definition of success and uh, their definition of success will keep varying as and when they are going into that field which they want to go into like i'll give you another example uh if you look at uh, the country of america you have a musician like chikoria who's mm-hmm. a uh, of course he's now passed on but jazz musician okay and then you have beyonce who's a pop musician now chikoria uh, while he was living had about maybe about 400 500000 followers on instagram and he's considered to be the greatest jazz musician ever and uh, jazz pianist and one of the greatest musicians in general huge inspiration to me and uh, 24 25 grammy awards you know wow. and then you have beyonce who's a pop singer you know or uh, let's say taylor swift okay yeah. pop singer taylor swift must be having like maybe about in single digit grammys or whatever yes and uh, then but she's extremely popular taylor swift she has maybe about i i think more uh, about maybe more than 100000 followers on instagram oh yeah so Sh- will you go to a chikoria and or, or do you think chikoria will be will be sitting down at home and wondering that why isn't why aren't people listening to my music as much as they're listening to you know taylor swift's music <laughs> i am a much better musician than taylor swift i'm a, a you know i'm i'm the greatest jazz pianist and all of that stuff why why are people listening to her music which is just pop and it's just got four chords in every song and it's so simplistic music and she's not even that great a singer or whatever why do you think chikoria would do that no because his definition of success is basically reaching out to the audience that listens to jazz music yeah he does not want to have that one size fits all approach that i want to listen to, i want everybody in america to or everybody in the world to listen to my music yeah. he wants to so for him it is about him digging dig, digging deep into his own emotions and his own heart and creating a piece of music that he absolutely loves and then for him it's about finding like minded people who like that music and listen to them i i do not want a heavy metal listener i i i do not mind that a person who listens to heavy metal does not listen to my music i don't mind that uh, uh, a swifty or whatever you, you uh, like yes taylor yeah, taylor swift uh, or a, or a B- bts person listens to my music it's fine you know yeah. they may gra- they may they may listen to my music at a later stage but i'm all right with it i'm all right with my small but extremely loyal audience whereas the audience that a taylor swift gets or a beyonce gets they may you may say that it's a very loyal audience but it's not as loyal as you may imagine yeah. because for them it's about what is the current trend and then basically once taylor swift uh, uh, uh once there is another taylor swift that is born who has another you know unique personality or a unique style of music which is within the pop genre music everybody will move on to that yeah. and then they'll move on to the next and then they'll move on to the next whereas chikoria has got fans who were his fans when he was in his when in his 20s or 30s right up to the day he died and beyond and those sort of musicians are generational right correct you have fathers listening and they teach their sons exactly. or daughters and people just keep listening through exactly. the family around that music and develop their sense of music with that so, so that is what so basically what is the definition of success that is what uh, do you chikoria is as successful as or maybe even more successful than a taylor swift so what is your definition of success or is your definition of success that i'm a hindustani classical musician and i only want to do kacheris i only want to do these betaks to small audiences mm. and i want to perform no i don't want to do stadiums i don't want to do pop music i don't want to collaborate with the beatles yeah. i don't want to collaborate with uh, with uh, michael jackson or whatever i want to just do my pure indian classical music and i'll that is my definition of success 
So basically, that's a small issue in India where people are defining what success is. The audiences say that, oh, uh, uh, like for example, for me, I've got like maybe about 300,000 followers on Instagram. Oh, you've got uh, three Grammys. Don't you think you should be having more followers on Instagram? No, I don't think so. The, the, I don't think so. I think that this this is the number of people who listen to my music. Yeah. yeah. And I'm fine with it, you know. Yeah. So that's the idea. No, I loved what you said about the Kacheri especially. Yeah. Because, you know, what we also have to believe that when I make that choice, I should be willing to live with the trade-off that comes with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, the other stuff should not be tempting to me. If the other stuff is tempting to you, go ahead and do that. And then it's okay. Yeah. Then say, I changed. I've changed Correct. my mind and I'm going to pivot and I'm going to do the stadiums because Correct. that's what I believe. Because if I'm making music for myself, I'm not going to get an audience like Taylor Swift. Yeah. Whereas Taylor Swift is extremely good at what she does where she can make music that appeals to, appeals across demographics. And that is why she has got a one-size-fits-all approach towards making music where, where people across generations, people across... Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, ethnicities, uh, cultures, exactly. Yeah. They, they, all of them, like you know, sort of like you know, they may be listening to other music, but they also love Taylor Swift's yeah. music. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. so that's the idea. But then again, it follows current trends. But then, if you look at art itself, like uh, if you look at a person like Vincent Van Gogh, hmm? one of the greatest artists, but again, a contem more a contemporary artist. So uh, rather than taking an example of Michelangelo or whatever, yeah. but but if you take a person like Vincent Van Gogh, if he was making a new piece of art. I cannot even imagine him going to all the neighboring art galleries and saying that, okay, what is everybody doing? Let me do something similar. Okay, this is in vogue. Let me do something, you know, that that kind of a or, thing. Or he would paint not, half of it and tell the audience, what would you have me do for the well, second half? Put it on Instagram <laughs> yeah. and say that, what would you like me to do in the second half or whatever? Yeah. Or uh, audience tell me, what would you like me to paint or whatever? So he wouldn't do all of that, you know? Uh, in fact, he again would dig deep into his soul and he would make a painting that is a representative representation of his. Now, there's a second aspect to this that if I wanted to know what kind of a person Vincent Van Gogh was, I'm not going to read a book about him. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not going to read his autobiography. I'm just going to look at all his art and I'm going to define that he was like a tormented guy. He had this psychedelic visions. He was like a cool guy to have a conversation with. Yeah. And, you know, and that I'm going to define his personality based on that. But in India, especially because Bollywood and the film industries have got such a huge dominance on the music industry, pretty much every song, not all songs, but pretty much every song that comes out of India is either a love song or an item song. Because everything is a one-size-fits-all approach. Everything is based on the sensibilities of a director or producer or what the audience wants. Mm -hmm. So that needs to change when it comes to music. Yeah. Or even if it does not change, uh, musicians who create music based on their own sensibilities should be fine with a smaller audience. And then... Be true to themselves Be, and their art and, and why they're doing it. Because you're right, absolutely. there's always sets of people who are happy to listen to and are, rather are yearning for that of Correct. that sort of music. Correct. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the the item song and the love, you're absolutely right. And there's so much, you know, because uh, I, I, you know, I believe in, in equality and also a lot of other things when it comes to women. A lot of it has misogyny just so deeply rooted in it. Right? And it's, it's quite crazy, actually, because uh, sometimes when you re go through the lyrics, you start like, for example, I was going to a friend's uh, daughter's uh, annual day function. She must have been in the fourth class. And uh, I went for the annual day function and they were dancing to Sheila Ki Jawani. And, and of course, and they were, uh, so I was telling my friend, I just leaned to my friend and said that, have you listened to the lyrics to the, what your daughter is uh, dancing to? And then I'm like, I think I'm feeling that I'm becoming like one of those old people who <laughs> are talking about these things. And then my friend tells me, that, no, but she's looking so cute while she's doing it. So I'm like, so basically they've just desensitized themselves to 
what uh, the art is, you know, yeah, and uh, and they're just out. okay with it. Yeah. Because it's it's quite crazy. She Lucky Jawani lyrics is about a girl coming of age and, you know, and all of that stuff. And now she's able to go around and now she's able to do stuff. And uh, so it's, 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 it's wrong just, at many levels. It's just wrong at too many levels. Yeah. But then just coming back to the music trends that you're seeing today, not only in India, but also globally, are there folks that you feel are, you know, you're looking, well, I wouldn't say you're looking up to, but have talent, have potential to be great. Not yourself, of course, you're already there. You've <laughs> you won three Grammys and yeah. a lot more journey to go. But I mean, like the newer folks that are coming out of India in terms of artists, are there any ones who you are really tracking and looking out for? I think pretty much all the classical musicians are amazing, and I perform with a lot of them. Hmm. Like, uh, for example, there is uh, uh, there is Pramod Kiran, who's a percussion player. There is uh, Giridharodapa. There is Arun Kumar. There is uh, Manju B C Manjunath, Vari Jashri Venugopal. Uh, all of these artists that they're, they're absolutely amazing. Ravi Chandra Kulur. All of them are amazing artists. They know how to express themselves through their art. In North India, you have Purbayan, who yes. I've uh, recorded with a couple of times. Absolutely amazing. Bikram Ghosh. Um, you know, uh, Rakesh Chaurasia. Yeah, and then, of course, amazing. you've got the others. Also, like, Niladri Kumar, he's doing some Niladri interesting... Niladri is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Niladri is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And then you have... Uh, of course, I'm missing out a lot of names. There are so many names that I want to mention. Then you've got uh, the legends also, like people like Shankar Mahadevan, who yeah. has been... <clears throat> who took a huge break from his commercial career to actually tour with Shakti. Uh, and in the past, he was with a Swedish band called Minta. So he basically... Uh, he he basically does his commercial work, but at the same time, he also does all of this other stuff. And for and his this, soul, <laughs> for his soul, and this is the kind of stuff that you know, if he does that, he's not going to have like a like a Maybach pick him up at the airport, and he's not going to uh, have the, an airport the promoters. Look. The promoters are not going to um, uh, what do you call that? Are not going to, <laughs> and then uh, the promoters are not going to uh, put him up in like seven star hotels and suites and all of that stuff. He's going to have to rough it out, but yet he chooses to do that. Because uh, because he wants to stay true to the art and he wants to explore all forms of the art. Yeah. Uh, so he's a person I've got uh, tremendous respect to because in spite of, you know, he could have just, like all the other composers, he could have just stuck to, you know, Bollywood and, you know, stuck to uh, being picked up in in uh, in Bentleys and Maybachs and all of that stuff and going into a hotel, being pampered like crazy and or being paid huge amounts of money for every concert. When he does his concert with Shakti or he does his concerts with Minta or, or these other Hindustani classical concerts that he does, I cannot imagine him being paid like, you know, like even a fraction of what he's been paid, but he still does that. So that's yeah. why I've got huge admiration for him. No, for sure. Uh, you know, you were talking about Taylor Swift and I recall now when uh, she announced her uh, concert last year, yeah. the GDP of the US went up. <laughs> you know, like it's literally that sort of thing. You know, suddenly people come out and start paying yeah, she's money. She's uh, hugely, hugely popular. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. one cannot deny that, like, massively popular. Yeah. Coming back to, you know, your environmental issues and, uh, you know, the COP28 is around the corner. It's going to be in Dubai. Um, you know, a lot of the global leaders who you might have interacted with through your career are all going to be there, hopefully defining what the charter for sustainable growth should look like for many of these countries. But very often, you know, most leaders look at it as I'm here representing the needs and the and the sort of the aspirations of my country. Yeah. And we sometimes tend to miss, uh, you know, the global collective good that we need to uh, achieve. You know, and the classic example is even last year, I remember there was a meme where they showed how all of these people, all of the ministers and the various people flew into the city, uh, all in their jet 
on their private jets and the carbon footprint they they had yeah. is huge so it's like ironic you're flying in to talk about creating a sustainable world and you are creating huge footprints that even most average people populations of cities don't create um so what do you think will be a good outcome are there any thoughts that you've had while you've interacted and been a UN goodwill ambassador as well that can allow for this tactics to become more towards collective and less towards individual i guess the systems that we build around us do not allow for us to be unfortunately it does not allow for us to be as environmentally conscious as we uh, would hope to be you know yeah. uh, like you mentioned about the leaders flying in over there uh, the thing is that they at the end of the day they cannot fly commercial airlines yeah. and it's very important for them to sit together and meet because um, even though online meetings and all of that stuff you know it it is useful to a certain extent they are mainly useful for follow ups and things like that but you have to make these bonds you have to make these friendships and that can only happen in person true uh, we are also doing this interview in person for the same reason yeah so i think uh, that becomes really important and, and there, it's it's very very unfortunate that there is a carbon there's a massive massive carbon footprint associated with it i also feel guilty of it all the time because i do these concerts which are for the environment and concerts which are encouraging everybody to take individual action sometimes concerts to world leaders to take action at a global level and speaking to them emotionally through the language of music but then again there's electricity usage for these concerts i have to fly to the concert venue of course i fly commercial but uh, the thing is that all really? of these carbon <laughs> <laughs> but all of these uh, yeah. carbon footprint uh, uh, issues are there so it's it's um, it's a very difficult situation that's all i can say do i have a solution for it absolutely not but uh, that's the way that the world is built around us because in the past when we built all of these systems you know like our, our previous generations and our generation when we built all these systems the paradigm was always that you know that you throw a piece of plastic and it'll go somewhere you know and uh, you know and you pollute the atmosphere uh, through your uh, industry or through your paper mill or through your tannery or whatever it the smoke is going to go somewhere you know and you throw something you you throw a sewage into the river or into the ocean it's going to go somewhere but now it's only for the last maybe uh, 40 or 50 years since the stockholm convention yes. that we've uh, suddenly started realizing that oh these things are finite you know it's a very thin atmosphere and the atmosphere is sort of getting filled up you know and it's causing this thing known as global warming because you know the there is an unnatural amount of carbon in the atmosphere and because of that global temperatures are rising it's the same thing with uh, with uh, pollution and uh, like you know plastics that you know we invented plastics as a miracle material because it uh, b- because it could not be washed away and it was non biodegradable but somehow we as human beings in the early 1900s we decided that a non biodegradable material is disposable yeah and single use which does not make any sense at all because if it's non biodegradable it has to be reused multiple times you know yeah. and then we decided that okay we're going to use it and throw it away so i mean that what it translates to is that you eat a bag of chips uh, which uh, takes you 5 minutes to eat and the bag is going to remain on this planet forever yeah you know and it's the same thing with everything that you throw away like drink a, a bottle of water it takes you like 30 seconds to drink that bottle of water like one of the small bottles of water and then after that the bottle is uh, on this planet forever yeah so that's the problem so that uh, so that uh, so now we are understanding you know the, now we are slowly understanding that you know what we were doing and the way that we were leading our lives was wrong and now we have to make changes uh, to policy we have to make changes to the way we do our, conduct our businesses the way that we lead our lives so that's what i believe that the cop what's going to be really important is that as you mentioned that everybody needs to work together and that's why everybody needs to meet in person and 
second thing is that uh, there needs to be a huge distinction between the global south and uh, and uh, the developed nations because uh, in a country like india or any country in the global south not everybody in the country has got the facility of flicking on a switch and a light turns on you know it's the developed nations that have that yeah and even we've got our dreams we've got our aspirations uh, we want a better standard of living we want to achieve that status of everybody wants to have electricity everybody wants to flick a switch and a light turns on everybody wants to be productive after 6:30 in the evening uh, you know every the everybody wants proper housing yeah um it said that most of the buildings that need to be built in india uh, by the year 2030 have not even been built like over 90% of them apparently so everybody wants to have like proper houses everybody wants to have um you know everybody wants to uh, uh, wants to have their villages or their towns to be accessible through roads uh, to the bigger cities uh, everybody wants to have access to airports and things like that yeah. so development becomes extremely important and uh, so we have to figure out how will the developed nations help the developing nations uh because we are not uh, the developing nations is not responsible for climate change it's them who's responsible for climate change we are just uh um facing the worst effects of it yeah and uh, and an unreasonable amount of effects you know uh, because uh, because of something that is not our fault at all so basically but at the same time we need to figure out how are we going to go through all of that development uh, in the most sustainable way possible and for that uh, the whole world needs to work together another quick example i can give you is uh, the uh, the rainforest yeah. in amazon now the whole world goes against brazil for you know burning down the rainforests and deforestation and all of that stuff and they should brazil should not be do uh, there should be a complete stop towards destruction of nature and whatever remains should remain and there should be a complete lock you know on that whole thing but then again uh the whole world keeps saying that amazon is the lungs of the planet yeah. they constantly keep saying that so why isn't the planet contributing to it you know so if this lungs sure. for the planet then why isn't united states uh, paying for the upkeep of upkeep of the thing why isn't united states or these large countries going to brazil and telling them that all right what will it take for you to stop doing uh, that for you to stop doing this we'll give you we'll we'll do whatever it takes we'll give you whatever you want but just stop doing it yeah you know so that is what and form a consortium for just you know for just this to ensure that the amazon is untouched but it, everybody wants to blame but nobody wants to take the blame and uh, if you've got a minute i'll give you another example Please, like uh, this uh, like for example if you look at the in 2020 uh there was this very heartbreaking image sorry there was this very heartbreaking image that uh, uh uh at the beginning of the pandemic of this uh pregnant female elephant uh who died while standing in palakkad district of uh, kerala she was standing right in the middle of uh, of a river and she was dead while she was standing up and she was found to be pregnant now it was a heartbreaking image it was uh, published by pretty much every single newspaper everywhere in the world and uh, the story behind it is that there was this female pregnant elephant she wanders out of the forest in search of food she goes to a uh, farmland mm. and over there she eats a pineapple and uh, little did she know that the pineapple was filled with explosives it fatally damages the mouth she wobbles away to uh, through the district uh, to the river she stands in the middle of the river and she dies while she's standing of course there were knee jerk reactions from armchair activists across india that you know that 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 farmer should be hung upside down should be beheaded should be flogged should be put in prison for life and the farmer should be punished for whatever he whatever the farmer should be punished for whatever they did but at the same time we as city developer city dwellers uh, as i mentioned earlier we live in uh, our own bubbles if we do not have electricity for 3 minutes we are so inconvenienced if we if there is a new iphone that comes out or a new gadget that comes out and it's out of stock we 
immediately feel that why can't they make more of it? Uh, what's wrong with them? Why can't they make more of it and all of that stuff? And why can't it be available? And uh, why can't it be available right now? So we don't think about where is all that coal coming from for our electricity? It's coming from digging up those forests of the elephant. Yeah. Uh, where is all that manganese, iron, cadmium, lithium, uh, barium, uh, tungsten coming from for making all those electronic gadgets that we consume on a daily basis and we keep throwing away? It basically comes from digging up the forest. So it's basically our city dwellers' uh, consumption patterns which is basically causing a destruction of the habitat and the food sources of that elephant. And the elephant has no other choice but to leave the forest for the food yeah. and going into a farmland. And the farmer has no other choice but to protect his or her livelihoods and the lives of his or her children. So he or she has to make that really painful and terrible and punishable offense of, um, you know, of uh, putting in those explosive fruits just to protect the lives of his or her families and livelihoods. And because of that, the elephant dies. So basically, instead of us putting blame on everybody, and that's what I hope happens at these cops, that we should have a culture of stopping to put blame on other people when it comes to environmental issues and start looking inwards as to what can I do? Yeah. Uh, you know, in my own individual capacity, can I consume less? Uh, can I use less electronic gadgets? What can I do to, uh, to prevent another elephant from dying? Mm. No, that was a very powerful image. And, and the story is almost heartbreaking, right? Mm. When you go into understanding what just happened, because that's constantly, you know, man versus the... the Human-animal conflict. That's what it major, is. Major, yeah. major. And it's very difficult to take sides because like you very rightly pointed out, there's empathy on both sides. Correct. And where do you then really say who is right and who's not? Correct. Uh, and you just have to find a balance uh, within that. Exactly. I liked what you said about going inwards mm. and, you know... Um, because we have a common connection in the way that you have interacted with Daji. Yeah. He was also... So PM Modi ji just came to Kana Correct. over the weekend. Correct. And, you know... And they you were, were there, yeah. <laughs> yes, I was yeah. there and, you know, we were... And and one of the things that Daji spoke about, as you know, he's very passionate about the environment and, you know, Kana Shantivanam is also sustainable. He spoke about uh, thought pollution. Yeah. You know, he said that, you know, we talk about all, all kinds of, you know, air pollution, water pollution. But the fact that... It all emanates from us as human beings around greed, around all of the things that you spoke about. Um, and therefore, we need to somewhere fix that Correct. for everything else to be in harmony. Now, true, even Prime Minister Modi also said that. He once yes. said that uh, the, uh, uh, the ecological imbalances are a reflection of imbalances of the mind, which I find to be very, very true. Uh, because at the end of the day, you brought out a very good point about what Daji had said, simply because... At the end of the day, it's a problem with the value system. If you go right to the basics yeah. about kindness, about empathy, about compassion. And the biggest problem is that children are born with all of that. You know, like uh, if, you, uh, if you see a child, a child basically is born with empathy, uh, innate love for nature, innate love for green, uh, innate love for animals. Uh, I've always said this, that if you have a, uh, uh, I mean, that you have a child, uh, like maybe a two-year-old, or maybe a one-year-old, you uh, put the child in a room um, along with an apple and a rabbit, okay? And you put a puppy dog mm. along with a rabbit and an apple. The puppy will eat the rabbit and play with the apple. Whereas a, a human child will always cuddle with the rabbit and will uh, eat, the, eat apple. the apple. So that is the way it is, you know, because uh, uh, human beings are born with that compassion and that innate love for nature, love for animals, love for all species, love for all life. 
That is what it is. But the way that we've built our systems around us, the way that we've built our education system, we are systematically erasing that from our children. Yeah. We are systematically erasing all of these qualities of compassion and all of that stuff. So what we need to do is that we need to develop an education system where these qualities remain within our children. Yeah. Because children are never born with racism. Children are never born with hatred. Uh, children are only born with love. They are only born with trying to... And that's why they say when it comes to environmental concerns and climate action, children are much faster at adopting uh, the right practices like doing away with single-use plastics, using a, uh, carrying a bottle everywhere and, uh, you know, and um, uh, uh, ensuring that open spaces remain... Uh, planting trees and uh, you know and things like that you know children are children are uh, uh, once you erase it from them and once you try to bring it back to them yeah. later on through uh, through you know teaching them songs or teaching them ideals or whatever they they are they they rush back to it faster because they do not have all these preconceived notions of what is good for the economy what is good for uh, what is what is more convenient uh, what is uh, uh, why uh, there are no alternatives to things you know, they do not look at all of this. They just look at something that is wrong and they say, okay, it is wrong. Call it, call a spade a spade, you know? Yeah. And then they say, no, we cannot do this. We have to do something else, you know? Yeah. Uh, because this is just wrong, you know? No, to your point, even in Delhi, you know how the air pollution is. And uh, in Diwali, it's mostly children telling their parents and also saying, I don't want to burst crackers yeah. because I can see and I've been taught in school what it's doing to nature. So I don't want to do it. And to your point about values, right? I think what you shared even earlier around you know, how Indian heritage, I think we're all tuned as society. We were always tuned to keep reusing, yeah, yeah. save, fix things, don't throw them the away. The use and throw is completely a Western concept. Yes. It is 100% a Western concept because everything for us has been about wearing the same clothes, just having a couple of clothes and wearing them again, washing them, reusing everything. Uh, teacups are made out of uh, mud and even using less air conditioning, building homes which are uh, which are uh, innately more cooler and things like that. So that's how our culture was, you know. Yeah. But then, unfortunately, you know, the things have changed. No, I, the two things I find most ironic is when you hear about yoga from outside. Now, of yeah. course, thanks to Modi ji, it's more about our culture. And second is when they come and sell minimalism to us. And I'm yeah. like, <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of very ironic. But, um, you know, to wrap this up, I want to understand, you know, how are you looking at uh, your next year, your next three years, five years, you know, what is it that you want to really achieve through your music and also personally, what is the one mission that you are going to be really hankering on? I would love to know that. No, but Milestones, it's a different story because uh, with Milestones, while growing up uh, in India, growing up in Bangalore, making independent music, I could not even imagine that uh, Grammy ever could be possible, right, in this lifetime. I would watch it on television and that was the end of it. And then winning my first Grammy when I was 33 and then winning another two more. So basically for me, there are no more uh, goals set for in terms of achieving because at the end of the day, like, you know, awards also, I look at it as always being a platform because a lot of people say that, oh, I don't like winning awards and things like that and, you know, uh, whatever. Of course, the, uh, the end goal is never an award. Uh, but when I win an award, I'm extremely grateful for it because each and every award is a platform uh, for doing bigger and better things, especially if you've got a message through your music. Uh, so it's about reaching out to a wider audience and, um, and uh, you know, and uh, collaborating with more people, getting your voice heard better and, uh, and creating better music, you know. Yeah. So it gives you the opportunity for all of that. So it's just a platform. So for me, I think in terms of goals, uh, when it comes to the environment and when it comes to nature, uh, it, it's science at the end of the day. 
and uh, when it comes to science uh, every day there are new findings and every day the direction changes you know as to what is the right way to do things and what is the wrong way to do things we saw in the pandemic yes first they said that you know that uh, you're supposed to wear cloth masks then they said cloth masks are no good and and it's not because they were fickle minded it is because the science at one point was dictating something else and they realized okay we're wrong you know uh so it would have been worse if they if they just stuck to their guns and said that no cloth masks are better you know yeah. so that kind of a thing so that's the beauty of science that be- the beauty of science is that you can admit that you were wrong and you can say okay there are new newer findings which are uh, showcasing that you know that you have to do things differently or or what we previously thought to be right is actually wrong and we have to look at things from a different perspective yeah. and that happens all the time like tobacco for example tobacco was a medicine yes uh dentists used to use it to fill up uh, cavities they would extract a tooth in the 1800s and early 1900s they would extract a tooth and they would fill up the socket with uh, a couple of leaves of tobacco oh. and that was used as a painkiller and then suddenly they started realizing that the incidence of buccal and mouth cancers are more prevalent with people who have visited the dentist and then they realize the correlation that it's tobacco that is causing the cancer oh wow i never yeah. knew that very interesting so that is what and then science realized that oh we've made a huge mistake over here same thing with carcinogens yes like like every now and then you realize that something that we've been using regularly is a carcinogen and you know and then science dictates that all right the, whatever you've been doing is wrong so it's the same thing with climate so that's why there is it's impossible to have a goal mm-hmm. uh you just have to follow the science and figure out what is science dictating in terms of what is uh what what is the narratives uh that needs to be needs to be told out or what how do we need to do things differently and that's what i uh, when i feel strongly about something i'm going to be making music on that yeah no fantastic i i so basically you're saying that you know even if it's a message that you want to deliver it has to be deeply rooted in science because then is be. then is why what makes it relevant and impactful and scientists uh, perform an extremely important role of figuring out what is wrong and what are the solutions but they are very boring people yeah. so they do not know how to communicate if you are uh, if somebody in the public asks them that okay what can i do you know for climate uh, change or whatever they'll show a whole lot of analytics and they'll show a whole lot of data and all of that stuff and it's not going to change any mindsets yeah. so what is needed is for artists to collaborate with scientists and to communicate these complex ideas and thoughts through an emotional language where you're hitting the hearts and souls of people rather than you know their heads and their minds you know and only if you reach out to somebody emotionally that is the only way you're going to be able to bring about behavioral change 100% yeah. absolutely uh, it's not rational thinking it's always what resonates and what when resonates you, exactly yeah, yeah that's what brings the change uh, no it was absolutely wonderful talking to you wonderful talking uh, to you too i just want to ask you one last question i heard about you know you had mentioned in one of your other interviews that you know you've always um, struggled with adhd and yeah. you know there are many people who almost take that as a handicap yeah. and you know i have seen you you sort of almost converted into a superpower um anything that you want to sort of share on that because now one people tend to self tag yeah. uh, that i am adhd yeah, just yeah, by yeah. like you know not, not one is that and correct, i think correct. second it's almost as if when they tag themselves then they take it as a way that they can avoid to do many normal things but you of course have used it as a way for you to make your music much better I don't think I've used it but uh, the thing is that uh, I've actually suffered through it quite a bit because uh, while growing up I was severely dyslexic and I would find it very difficult to read uh, in school and uh, to actually uh, uh, you know to study and to get good marks and things like that so much so that when I passed out of college I swore that I'm never going to read a book again so since the time I passed out of college when I was 24 till today I've not read a single book uh, because it's just too stressful for me to read it it's so bad that I read a uh, I read about two or three lines 
and then when i uh, go to the 6th or 7th line and i come back to the first line i realize it's something completely different and uh, so it's very difficult but th- there have been coping mechanisms that i've realized through my life like you know using marker pens and you know and uh, 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 of course uh, the internet was hugely beneficial for me because reading stuff on a tablet or reading stuff on a computer screen it it helps me a lot because of the larger font and the additional stimuli of having pictures like when i was growing up comic books was my friend i used to love comic mm-hmm. books and that's why even with the education curriculum i'm constantly uh, pushing them like you know to make textbooks more inclusive because as soon as you make textbooks look more like comic books it be- immediately becomes inclusive to a wide variety of uh, children um so i guess uh, uh, uh that these are the problem but the biggest problem that i feel when it comes to adhd and dyslexia is uh, is the unnat- uh, is the unnecessary uh, romanticism of it uh, like for example if and i believe that the hollywood movie industry and bollywood is absolutely responsible for this like you have tare zameen par Uh, sort of like they captured a couple of things right i identified with a couple of things in the movie mm-hmm. but i think the biggest problem that they had with the movie is that they made the child win in the end which i think was extremely irresponsible because immediately parents think that all right you know if i've got a child who is who is uh, you know dyslexic or is at the autism spectrum disorder then they must be some sort of a genius which is not true at all because sometimes sometimes they just may be that yeah. or they may have some sort of a genius ability which which they will not figure out during their lifetime because the way it is is that the more and more deeper you get into autism uh the thing is uh, you know the, the more differently a person thinks from um a, 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 yeah a sort of perceived regular person uh, it's just that uh, their brain is wired completely differently that's the way that i look at it i may be wrong but that's the way that i've looked at it through my uh uh huge amounts of interaction and uh, you know and understanding this so sometimes you do not understand what they're going through and they do not understand what you're going through and there is a huge communication issue mm-hmm. so then you have films like rain man where uh, uh dustin hoffman is a person on the on the spectrum and uh, you know and he's like this mathematical genius and then you have uh Zach Galifianakis in the comedy movie that is uh Hangover. Yeah yeah. You, yeah. He's obviously playing somebody on the spectrum. And then he's like this person who can count blackjack cards and all of that stuff. And then you have Forrest Gump also. Yeah. Again on the spectrum. And then he's this person who's a genius runner and you know and he's an athlete. So I believe that this gives very unnatural expectations to parents when they see this because automatically the first thing that even a common person thinks about when they say they're all right this person's suffering on the on the spectrum they're like oh then they must be a genius or whatever and it's attributed to me too when when uh, the few people who know about this about me um and of course people figure it out because of the way that I talk really fast I'm very fidgety a lot of hand movements and um you know and uh, things like that you know and you know on stage also it's very easy to find out that there is something off you know but uh, the thing is that uh, for me also they people automatically attribute that okay uh, he's a musician because of this you know Uh, so I believe that one should not attribute it to that because mm. uh, the thing is that it it, no, it, it probably yeah it probably is not and most probably is not attributed to uh, just this and plus you know it just gives an unreal expectation to people who have family who are suffering from this and tell me then what is your empathetic way to deal with someone like that right just be normal with them that's it i think just be normal with everybody yeah and uh, just try to understand them yeah you know like um, uh, j- just try to uh, just try to show an extreme amount of empathy i think that's what uh, is absolutely required no but in schools you know where like you get i, I don't know about you but i have seen like you know when somebody is slow when somebody is just different 
you tend to just bully them right because mm. children in those ways are very brutal you're not no, kind no i've seen that in my school also yeah. people were brutal with me and then there were people there, there was this other kid in uh, my class who was uh, in a more extreme form you know and uh, you know and it was showcasing in many other ways in verbal ways and things like that so uh, and that uh, kid was bullied a lot in school so much so that he had to leave the school yeah so that uh, i remember uh, and plus his mother also was in complete denial mother would come to school and i remember being part of conversations where the mother would say that there's nothing wrong with my child and it just needs to be taught and needs to be given time or whatever and he's being very stubborn and things like that and stubbornness is a part of uh, of the of the spectrum uh, children who have who are dyslexic people who have adhd are usually very stubborn i was a very stubborn child i still am so that's what and then and uh, but but of course you you start having a little bit of self realization where you start realizing that oh i am being very difficult i am being very stubborn and you start realizing that it's because of a problem and then you start trying to work against your instinct you know you start working against your instincts so that uh, so that you can remove that stubbornness because a part of you is telling you you're absolutely right in what you're saying right now you know you there is no two ways about it you're right and you have to fight for it or whatever and this other part is telling you that no you will regret what you're doing right now you know yeah. in in a in a couple of days or in one or two days you're going to you're going to regret that stance that you took and you're going to feel like a complete idiot you know uh, and you're going to burn a bridge because of the way that you're behaving so these are the conflicts that you have in your mind like you just said you did with steven it's, it's, uh, it's the same thing yeah, it's Copeland, the same thing it's where you were like thing. no i'm just going to surrender yeah. so you it was actually for you a big battle an internal correct, correct. battle where you it were is. being in a way counter intuitive to yourself correct because still- because some part of you is telling you that your instincts are good and some parts are telling you that no like you know this is this is something that is absolutely wrong yeah. you're living in a society you know and this is not the way to behave you know so that's the thing and you you felt that you know your parents somehow were were better tuned to creating the See, right environment my parents environment? never ever uh, i used to think it was denial with my parents but then later on i realized that uh, uh, my parents did not want me to feel different but they obviously knew they yeah. obviously knew okay No thank you for sharing this because you know uh, very often we have people like that uh, who we interact with in mm. a, on a daily basis and I think very often we uh, try to either categorize them and we don't know how to be sensitive even Correct. if we want to be uh, you know because we either don't have the right language Correct. um or we just don't know what appropriate behavior looks like because Correct. either in society we've been told to just like shut them out yeah. and not interact uh, because we don't know the how so mm. so thank you so much for sharing that um And very no, but that's how humanity is, right? Humanity, everybody has to walk together, and uh, because that's what differentiates us from animals. I do not think it is compassion that differentiates from us from animals, or, or, uh, uh, or anything like that. I believe that the only thing that differentiates us from animals is basically that that we know how to walk together, and uh, we have shunned this whole thing of survival of the fittest. Yeah. Because, like for example, you and me, my eyesight. I've got a power of five point five, so I'm pretty much blind without my. Uh, sorry, I'm pretty much blind without my contact lenses or without my glasses. Now if I were to live in the animal kingdom I wouldn't have survived a couple of weeks True So that's what my no own food. parents would have disowned me Yeah My own parents would have been like this guy is not part of the flock and like you know and uh, or part of the pack because we cannot keep protecting him he cannot see anything he cannot hunt or whatever so let's just go and leave him behind you know and I would have probably starved to death or something like that Same thing with uh, you know uh, with uh, the uh, spectrum or whatever So that is the thing you know like uh, we are allowing our uh, bloodlines to be impure as they say you know which is a good thing you know because i believe that everybody every living being needs to have a chance and what we as humans are doing 
is that we are providing the chance to everybody yeah. whether you've got a disability or whether you know you've got uh, uh, you're on the spectrum or whether uh, you've got an injury or whatever we are giving everybody a chance and i think we as humanity need to protect that extremely fiercely where everybody needs to move together as uh, as one and we cannot leave anybody behind so well said i mean so much strength in what you just shared yeah. because you know when we move together it's just beautiful yeah. there's there's a different kind of energy that we all create amongst us and ourselves. that's what makes us human that's the only thing that makes us human in fact yeah no thank you this has been a very enlightening conversation i know even though you say you're an atheist i somehow <laughs> feel that there is so much uh, that i have learned about human character so much that i have learned about just life values which i think uh, hopefully you know we all can imbibe and also learn from because we've heard from you and how that has made you so successful so hopefully that will act as an inspiration uh, but yeah i am going to keep tracking you and looking forward to much more music and and many more awards so that you can keep <laughs> doing more impactful work no because like you said it's a it's a platform yeah. many more millions of people will listen to you just by the mere fact that you're getting that validation yeah. that's how society runs uh, so many more awards to you thank you so much <laughs> thanks a lot <laughs> thank, thank you, you.